Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the TD Bank Group Q4 2021 Earnings Conference Call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Ms. Jillian Manning. Please go ahead, Ms. Manning. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon and welcome to TD Bank Group's fourth quarter 2021 investor presentation. We will begin today's presentation with remarks from Barrett Mazrani, the bank CEO, after which Kelvin Tran, the bank CFO, will present our fourth quarter operating results. Ajay Bambawale, Chief Risk Officer, will then offer comments on credit quality, after which we will invite questions from pre-qualified analysts and investors on the phone. Also present today to answer your questions are Terry Curry, Group Head, Canadian Personal Banking, Greg Braca, President and CEO, TD Bank, America's Most Convenient Bank, and Riaz Ahmed, Group Head, Wholesale Banking. Please turn to slide two. At this time, I would like to caution our listeners that this presentation contains forward-looking statements that there are risks that actual results could differ materially from what is discussed, and that certain material factors or assumptions were applied in making these forward-looking statements. Any forward-looking statements contained in this presentation represent the views of management and are presented for the purpose of assisting the bank's shareholders and analysts in understanding the bank's financial position, objectives and priorities, and anticipated financial performance. Forward-looking statements may not be appropriate for other purposes. I would also like to remind listeners that the bank uses non-GAAP financial measures such as adjusted results to assess each of its businesses and to measure overall bank performance. The bank believes that adjusted results provide readers with a better understanding of how management views the bank's performance. Barrett will be referring to adjusted results in his remarks. Additional information on items of note, the bank's use of non-GAAP and other financial measures, the bank's reported results and factors and assumptions related to forward-looking information are all available in our annual 2021 report to shareholders. With that, let me turn the presentation over to Barrett. Thank you, Jillian, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Q4 was a great quarter for TD, and it caps off a strong year. Earnings were $3.9 billion for the quarter, and EPS was $2.09, up 31% from a year ago. On a full-year basis, earnings were $14.6 billion, and EPS was $7.91, up nearly 50%, reflecting higher revenue and a recovery in provisions for credit losses. Our retail businesses recorded strong volume and fee income growth as we added new customers and deepened existing relationships in an environment of rising activity. Our wholesale bank, built on last year's record performance, winning key client mandates and continuing to advance our U.S. dollar strategy. And our CET1 ratio ended the year at 15.2%, up more than 200 basis points from the fourth quarter of last year. Reflecting these strong results, we declared a $0.10 dividend increase today, bringing our dividend to $0.89 per per share per quarter. And we announced our intention to repurchase up to 50 million common shares for cancellation, subject to regulatory approval. We are pleased to be able to return capital to shareholders while retaining significant flexibility to continue investing in organic and inorganic growth opportunities. 
I'm proud of what we've accomplished this year. We've stood shoulder to shoulder with our customers, colleagues, and communities, supporting them through the worst of the pandemic and helping them participate in the recovery. There's still much work to do to ensure that this recovery is sustained and sustainable. But we meet the challenge from a position of strength, powered by our proven business model, guided by our long-term strategy, and investing purposefully in our businesses to position them for future growth. Our Canadian retail segment earned $8.5 billion this year with higher revenues across the banking, wealth, and insurance businesses. We delivered record real estate secure lending originations, card retail sales, wealth assets, and insurance premiums, and we extended our lead in deposits and personal money movement as customers responded to our expanded advice and product offerings by bringing us more of their business. We're winning with customers with the capabilities we've developed to deliver legendary experiences. Our TD Aeroplan, Visa, Infinite, and MBNA Rewards Platinum Plus cards received top billing in several industry reviews, reflecting the investments we've made to enhance the depth and breadth of our premier uh, suite of credit cards. In addition to being named Best Digital Bank in North America by Global Finance, we were named Canada's Best Consumer Digital Bank, ranking number one in seven categories, including Best Mobile Banking App, Best Information Security and Fraud Management, and Best Open Banking APIs, as well as Most Innovative Digital Bank for the third year running. And as the number one financial institution patent filer in Canada, with over 300 patents granted to date, we are investing in the R&D to keep TD at the forefront uh, of shaping the future of banking. A U.S. retail bank earned $3.3 billion U.S. billion in fiscal 2021, with improving top-line growth throughout the year, strong deposit volumes, triple, triple P loan forgiveness, and a steady recovery in consumer lending and fee income helped offset continued margin pressure. We built on our lead in core deposits, ranking eighth nationally, supported by further market share gains. We saw personal loan volumes rebound in latter half of the year with higher year-end balances in mortgages, cards, and indirect auto. We ranked number one for SBA lending in our Maine to Florida footprint for, for a fifth year running, and we were the number seven triple P lender nation, uh, nationwide, helping small business customers obtain forgiveness for nearly 100,000 loans with gross care, carrying value of almost $9 billion U.S. dollars. While this is weighing on our loan balances in the near term, it has strengthened our leadership with small business customers in our footprint that are at the heart of our 1TD strategy. That 1TD strategy also helped us earn two J.D. Power Awards this year. TD Bank, America's most convenient bank, ranked first in J.D. Power's 2021 Small Business Banking Satisfaction Study in the South Region, our third win in this category. And TD Auto Finance took top spot in the 2021 Dealer Finance Satisfaction Study for non-captive lenders with prime credit for the second year in a row. And we continue to deliver on our omni-channel strategy, amplifying unexpectedly human customer experiences with enhanced digital capabilities, including launching a new robo-advisor solutions for our wealth clients and entering into a data access agreement with Acoya designed to help customers share their data with fintechs and aggregators safely and securely 
as we continue to demonstrate principled leadership on open banking. Our wholesale banking segment delivered strong results this year with earnings of $1.6 billion. Over the last several years, TD Securities has made significant strides building on its strengths in Canada and investing in the global expansion of its U.S. dollar strategy. The dealer has grown its revenue base by almost 35% since 2018, added over 100 new corporate lending clients, and expanded its product, industry, and ESG advisory capabilities. The progress is evident in strong client activity across the dealer's footprint. This quarter, our Canadian banking team acted as financial advisor to Igniko Eagle on a spending merger with Kirkland Lake Gold for a combined market capitalization of 24 billion US dollars, the second largest gold M&A transaction ever and the largest gold merger of equals transaction. In the US, we've grown our US prime services uh, business, adding 27 funds and uh, 8 billion US dollars in gross assets over the last year. And in Europe, TD Securities was one of five joint lead managers and the only Canadian dealer on the European Union's 12 billion euros uh, inaugural green bond, the largest green bond ever, issue ever. Overall, I'm very pleased with our performance this year. We see continued upside to volume and, and fee income as the recovery progresses, as well as the potential for higher spread revenue from rising rates. Coupled with our proven business model, the growth opportunities in each of our businesses and our ability to deploy capital, we believe we can grow adjusted EPS by 7 to 10% over the medium term. While we have good momentum entering the year, the road ahead is likely to be bumpy and it will be challenging to meet our medium-term objective in 2022. In addition to a comp complex uh, macroeconomic environment, we are likely to see normalizations in PCLs, insurance claims, and wealth trading activity, along with declining revenue related to triple P loan forgiveness. As always, we will stay focused on our long-term strategy and continue to execute on our enterprise priorities delivering more value for customers across our distribution channels, leveraging our data, analytics, and AI capabilities to elevate the customer experience, transforming the way we work to achieve better, faster outcomes, investing in our colleagues to ensure they have the skills and resources to grow and succeed in a changing world, and continuing to embed ESG in everything we do, from meeting our commitments to increase the representation of women, black, and indigenous peoples, in our executive ranks, to executing on our climate action plan and helping build the sustainable future the world urgently needs. To wrap up, I'm proud of the strong financial results and returns we've generated for shareholders this year. I'm equally proud of the, val of the value we delivered for all our stakeholders. Last month, TD was named to the Dow Jones Sustainability World Index for the eighth year in a row a measure of our long track record of good environmental stewardship, social responsibility, and corporate governance. We were also recognized as an employer of choice in numerous surveys, one of the world's best employers in 2021, according to Forbes, a top diversity employer according to Canada's best diversity employers and Diversity Inc. in the U.S., home to a top, uh, home, uh, home to a top team and two executives in American Bankers' 2021 Most Powerful Women program, 
and a member of the Bloomberg Gender Equality Index for five years running. But the greatest recognition is the 90,000 TD bankers who choose to make their careers at TD. They are the real force behind our success and the reason I'm confident we will continue to build on these achievements as we pursue our shared vision to be the better bank. I thank them for their hard work and dedication. And finally, a word to our customers, colleagues, and communities in British Columbia affected by the devastating flooding. We are thinking of you and will continue to focus on providing whatever support we can through this upheaval. With that, I'll turn things over to Calvin. Thank you, Barrett. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Please turn to slide 10. For 2021, the bank reported earnings of $14.3 billion and earnings per share of $7.72, both up 20%. Adjusted earnings were $14.6 billion, and adjusted EPS was $7.91, up 47% and 48% respectively. Revenue decreased 2%, which includes the impact of the $1.4 billion pre-tax net gain on the sale of the bank's investment in TD Ameritrade in the fourth quarter last year. Adjusted revenue increased 1%, or 3.4% XFX and the insurance fair value change, reflecting strong fee income and volume growth, partly offset by lower retail margins and a decline in wholesale trading revenue from 2020's elevated levels. Provision for credit losses was a recovery of $224 million, lower by $7.5 billion, primarily reflecting a performing PCL recovery compared with last year's build. Expenses increased 7%, mainly reflecting an increase in the retailer program partner's net share of the profits from the U.S. strategic cards portfolio, primarily due to lower PCL. After this, adjusted expenses increased 1.8% or 3.7% XFX, reflecting higher employee-related expenses, including variable compensation and higher spend supporting business growth. Because of the large year-over-year change in PCL, the accounting for the U.S. strategic card portfolio continues to have a significant impact on total bank expenses pre-tax, pre-provision earnings, and operating leverage. Slides 25 to 27 show how we calculate total bank PTPP and operating leverage removing this impact, along with the impact of foreign currency translation, which was significant this year, and the insurance fair value change. Slide 26 shows that after making these adjustments, total bank PTPP was up 3% from fiscal 2020, reflecting strong revenue growth in the retail segment, partly offset by lower wholesale revenue. Please turn to slide 11. For Q4, the bank reported earnings of $3.8 billion and EPS of $2.04, down 26% and 27% respectively. Adjusted earnings were $3.9 billion and adjusted EPS was $2.09, up 30% and 31% respectively. Revenue declined 
which includes the impact of last year's pre-tax net gain on the sale of our stake in TD Ameritrade. Adjusted revenue increased 5% or 6.5% XFX and the insurance fair value change, reflecting strong fee income and volume growth in the retail businesses, partially offset by lower wholesale trading-related revenue from Q4 2020's elevated levels. Provision for credit losses was a recovery of $123 million, with impaired PCL more than offset by a performing PCL release. Expenses increased 4% year-over-year, including an increase in the retailer program partner's net share of the profits from the U.S. strategic cards portfolio, primarily due to lower PCL. Absent this, adjusted expenses increased 2.2% or 3.9% XFX, reflecting higher employee-related expenses, including variable compensation and higher spend on professional and advisory services and marketing as we position ourselves for future growth, partially offset by higher corporate real estate optimization charges in the prior year. Total bank PTPP, with the modifications shown on slide 25 to 27, was up 10% year-over-year on strong revenue growth. PTPP was down 2% quarter-over-quarter, mainly reflecting higher sequential expense growth. Please turn to slide 12. Canadian retail net income for the quarter was $2.1 billion, up 19% year-over-year. On an adjusted basis, net income was up 17%. Revenue increased 8%, reflecting higher volume growth and higher fee-based revenue in the wealth and banking businesses, partially offset by lower deposit margins and a decrease in the fair value of investments supporting claims liabilities which resulted in a similar decrease in insurance claims. Average loan volume rose 8%, reflecting 8% growth in personal volumes and 11% growth in business volumes. Average deposits rose 11%, including 8% growth in personal volumes, 17% growth in business volumes, and 12% growth in wealth deposits. Both assets increased 24%, reflecting market appreciation and new asset growth. Net interest margin was 2.57%, down four basis points compared to the prior quarter, reflecting lower mortgage prepayment revenue. Total PCL of $53 million declined $47 million sequentially, reflecting a larger recovery in performing PCL this quarter. Total PCL as an annualized percentage of credit volume was 0.04%, down 18 basis points from the fourth quarter last year. Insurance claims increased 3% year-over-year, primarily reflecting less favorable prior year's claims development and the higher current year claims from business growth, partially offset by improved current year claims experience. Reported non-interest expenses increased 8% year-over-year, reflecting higher spend supporting business growth, including technology and marketing costs, higher employee-related expenses and variable compensation, partially offset by prior year charges related to the Greystone acquisition. Adjusted expenses increased 10%. Please turn to slide 13. U.S. retail segment reported net income for the quarter 
was U.S. dollar $1.1 billion, up 66% year-over-year. U.S. retail bank net income was a record $897 million U.S., up 123%, primarily reflecting lower PCL and higher revenue. Revenue increased 8% year-over-year, reflecting accelerated fee amortization from PPP loan forgiveness, growth in deposit volumes, higher valuation of certain investments, and higher fee income partially offset by lower deposit margins. Average loan volumes decreased 6% year-over-year, reflecting a 10% decline in business loans, primarily due to PPP, loan forgiveness, paydowns, and lower line usage. Personal volumes were down 1% year-over-year, but up 2% sequentially, with growth in all major asset classes. Average deposit volumes, excluding sweep deposits, were up 14% year-over-year. Personal deposits were up 16%, including 23% growth in consumer checking, and business deposits were up 11%. Sweep deposits declined 2%. Net interest margin was 2.21%, up 5 basis points sequentially, reflecting higher investment income and accelerated amortization from PPP loan forgiveness. On slide 30, we've added new disclosure on the impact of the PPP program, showing its contribution to U.S. retail bank net interest income and net interest margin. This quarter, PPP revenue contributed to about $110 million U.S. to NII and 16 basis points to NIM. While the exact timing of loan forgiveness is difficult to predict, we expect most of this benefit to have faded by the second quarter of next year. Total PCL was a recovery of $62 million U.S., higher by $12 million U.S., sequentially reflecting a smaller recovery in performing PCL. The U.S. retail net PCL ratio, including only the bank's share of PCL for the U.S. strategic cards portfolio, was an annualized percentage of credit volume was minus 0.15%, higher by three basis points sequentially. Expenses increased 3% year-over-year, primarily reflecting higher incentive-based compensation and higher investment in the business, partially offset by productivity savings. The contribution from TD's investment in Schwab was $195 million U.S., compared to a contribution of $255 million U.S., from TD Ameritrade a year ago. Please turn to slide 14. Wholesale net income for the quarter was $420 million, a decrease of 14% compared to a very strong quarter, uh, fourth quarter last year, reflecting lower revenue and higher non-interest expenses, partially offset by lower PCL. Revenue was $1.2 billion, down 8% year over year. At $510 million, trading-related revenue was down 33% from the elevated level seen in Q4 2020. Partially offsetting this, lending revenue, advisory fees, and equity, rending, equity underwriting all increased year-over-year. PCL for the quarter was a recovery of $77 million, lower sequentially on recoveries in impaired and performing PCL. Expenses increased 13% year-over-year, 
primarily reflecting high employee-related costs from continued investment in wholesale banks, U.S. dollar strategy, and variable, comp higher variable compensation. Please turn to slide 15. The corporate segment reported a net loss of $150 million in the quarter, compared with a reported net income of $2 billion in the fourth quarter last year. The year-over-year -year decrease was primarily attributable to the net gain on the sale of the bank's investment in TD Ameritrade of $1.4 billion, or $2.25 billion after tax, partially offset by lower net corporate expenses and a higher contribution from other items. Adjusted net loss for the quarter was $65 million, compared with an adjusted net loss of $213 million in the fourth quarter last year. Please turn to slide 16. The common equity tier one ratio ended the quarter at 15.2%, up 74 basis points from Q3. We had strong organic capital generation this quarter, which added 49 basis points to CET1 capital. We gained another 13 basis points from a reduction in non-significant investments above the 10% threshold deduction, reflecting the combined impact of an increase in the threshold from CET1 capital growth and a decrease in net holdings of equity securities in wholesale banking. Lower RWA net of FX and other items added a further 12 basis points to capital, mainly attributable to lower credit risk RWA. Credit risk RWA declined $6.4 billion, primarily due to improved asset quality in U.S. commercial and auto loans. The leverage ratio was 4.8% this quarter, and the LCR ratio was 126%, both well above regulatory minimum. I will now turn the call over to Ajay. Okay, well, thank you, Kelvin, and good afternoon, everyone. Please turn to slide 17. Gross-impaired loan formations were stable quarter over quarter at 11 basis points, remaining at cyclically low levels. Please turn to slide 18. Gross-impaired loans decreased 240 million, or three basis points quarter over quarter, to a new cyclical low of 32 basis points. The decrease was across all segments and related to the ongoing impact of support programs, customer resilience, and the economic recovery. Please turn to slide 19. Recall that our presentation reports PCL ratios, both gross and net, of the partner's share of the U.S. strategic card PCLs. We remind you that PCLs recorded in the corporate segment are fully absorbed by our partners and do not impact the bank's net income. The bank recorded a PCL recovery of $124 million in the fourth quarter, reflecting a performing allowance release, partially offset by continued low impaired provisions. Please turn to slide 20. The bank's impaired PCL was 219 million, lower by 25 million quarter over quarter and reaching a new cyclical low. Performing PCL was a recovery of 343 million compared to a recovery of $279 million last quarter. 
The current quarter recovery reflects additional allowance releases across all segments. For 2021, the bank's full-year PCL rate was a recovery of three basis points, compared to provisions of 100 basis points in 2020, as credit performance has outperformed our initial expectations. Please turn to slide 21. The allowance for credit losses decreased 462 million to 7.2 billion quarter over quarter, reflecting further improvement in credit conditions and the impact of foreign exchange. Now, let me briefly summarize the year. Credit performance trended positively in 2021 as we progressed through the pandemic, as evidenced by cyclically low gross-impaired loan formations, gross-impaired loans, and PCLs. I expect PCLs to be higher in 2022, increasing from unsustainably low levels this year, as the benefit from support programs subside and credit conditions begin to normalize. However, credit results may vary by quarter, and Low PCL levels may persist in the near term, benefiting from low impairments and the potential for further performing releases. To conclude, TD remains well positioned given we are adequately provisioned, we have a strong capital position, and we have a business that is broadly diversified across products and geographies. With that operator, we are now ready to begin the Q&A session. Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your device's keypad. You may cancel your question at any time by pressing star 2. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while participants register for questions. Thank you for your patience. And the first question is from Gabriel DeShane from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. First question, lots of pressure. Okay, um, the PPP uh, balances there, that new disclosure, uh, a $4.8 billion, well, that's not new disclosure, but it's a $4.8 billion balance at, at, at the period end. It fell about $4 billion from Q3 levels. Can you give me a sense of... Uh, you know, when do you expect that to fully run off? Is it going to be next quarter, or are you going to take two? And would the would there be a commensurate or linear uh, revenue impact as those are uh, repaid? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. 
new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I assume uh, you want me to take that, Barrett? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Greg. Gabriel, how are you? And thanks for the questions, Greg Baraka. And um, I, I would just say that... Uh, yeah, we continue to progress, and I'll, I'll remind you of the kind of comments I made during Q3 uh-huh. was that we expected the majority of this PPP runoff to really uh, uh, come to conclusion by the, the middle of 22. It's playing out the way we thought. We did have a bit of further um, acceleration of forgiveness during the fourth quarter, and we had over $3 billion of, of loans forgiven during Q4 alone. With that said, uh, we've got uh, a little over $3 billion left of forgiveness um, uh, as we come into the start of 22 fiscal, and we expect the majority of this is done uh, by Q1 and Q2 of next year. Okay, but like kind of an even, if it's spread out over two quarters, that, that's a similar... Correct. It depends. A lot of this depends on uh, the, the customers uh, coming into us and making sure the documentation is prepared. We've got to obviously coordinate all of this with the SBA. They've got to give us final sign-off on it. So a lot of it has to stage. But all things being equal, I think you'd tend to see more of it get done uh, in Q1 or Q2. But by the end of the second quarter, uh, we should probably be out of it. Okay. And and my thanks for that. My uh, second question for Barrett, uh, the dividend, uh, pre-COVID, you reviewed it uh, every Q1. Uh, you know, for obvious reasons, you did it in Q4. Glad to see that. Just wondering, you know, what the future holds. Would you be, you know, evaluating the dividend in Q1 22, or, you know, was this quarter, a, you know, a, a sneak peek at that? And then, and, and, and if that's the case, we wouldn't see another dividend increase potentially until Q1 of 23. If you could clarify, please. Yeah, Gabe. Uh... Nice to, I can't see you, but uh, good to hear your voice, and I hope everything is well with you. Um, you know, we look at our dividends, you know, on an ongoing basis as to what makes sense. It's, it's tough to, you know, give you a particular, you know, timeline on that. Uh, but it was important this time around, you know, given that the restrictions on dividends uh, were lifted, that, you know, we do uh, increase our dividend in, in line with, you know, what our expectations are. Uh, but it's not a bad assumption that we like to look at this on an annual basis, and, and hopefully we get into that cycle. But that doesn't mean that we will not periodically look at it uh, on a different cycle based on circumstance and the environment you know we might be in. Uh, so I, I don't know how to interpret that. Well, it's not, you know, you, you're asking me next quarter. I, I don't think so. That would be my modeling. Okay. Uh, but you know, I, I can't precisely tell you, you know, when do we look at our dividends? Uh, you know, generally our cycle has been annual and that has worked out reasonably well for us, but it will depend on the environment going forward because we are looking at a, a lot of uh, changes to the environment than what we had pre-pandemic. Is it unlikely that we have to wait until 2023 or is that 
that this thing's possible? I, I can't tell you exactly, Gabe. Okay. It's hard to predict, you know, the whole year out there. But, you know, our, our, our general practice is to look at this uh, once a year. We like that, but it will depend on the environment that we are in. Well, thanks, and I uh, hope all is well with you as well. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. The next question is from John Aiken from Barclays. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Good afternoon, Barrett. I, I understand your reticence uh, about the medium-term EPS uh, target uh, hitting it in, in 2022, given the success that Ajay has had in provisions in, in 2021. But would you would you be willing to make a commentary about pre-provision, pre-tax earnings, whether or not you think the, the medium-term uh, target could be hit on that on that basis in 2022? You know, no doubt, as I said in my remarks, uh, that, you know, we got mo good momentum. Our business mix uh, is terrific. You know, our, our businesses and the momentum we are seeing are suited for this type of a recovery, so we like that. Uh, so, so we we enter the year uh, with good confidence. But as I said in my remarks, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty out there, a lot of bumpiness. Uh, nobody had heard of this new variant as of a week ago, so things can change quite dramatically. Um, but feel comfortable that with our business mix and and uh, and the way we are positioned, uh, the geography, the geography, different you know territories we are in in our footprint. Um, that uh, we feel good to, to, to maintain our medium-term uh, earnings growth target of 7 to 10%. But it's, it's very hard to put a pin on, on one particular year, given all the uncertainties around it regarding provisions, regarding the variance, normalization of activity, whenever that might happen or not happen. So in all those respects, your guess will be as good as mine. <laughs> I think your guess is better than mine, Barrett. Thanks, and I'll, I'll leave... Uh... I'll leave the capital question up to somebody else. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, first question just on uh, regulatory capital. Credit risk RWA is down about 8% year over year, and it looks, around, looks like around half of this is driven by an improvement in, in quality and, you know, quality improvement. It looks like it's added about 47 basis points to the set one ratio over the past year. And I guess the question is, are you purposely de-risking or what, what's driving this in particular? Yeah, well, thanks for the question. It's Ajay, so, so I'll respond. Uh, what I would say is we're seeing improvement in credit quality pretty much across the bank, all segments. Uh, we're seeing lower PDs. We're seeing an improvement in LGD as well. And a good example of that is our U.S. auto business, you know, where car prices and used car prices have been going up. On the non-retail side as well, again, all commercial businesses, we're seeing upgrades in ratings. Uh, so generally, positive credit migration is occurring. Uh, but as Kelvin said, a big piece of this is the U.S., and U.S. auto is, a, is an important contributor. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, and I guess I just, you know, follow up on that. Is this something that, you know, as we look at, it makes a big part of this, I guess, is part of my question, too. And as you start to get a pickup in commercial lending, start to pick up in credit card revolvers, are we start to kind of see that mix shift start to drag down? Like, I guess, like, is mix a big part of this as well? Well, I'd, I'd say mix is a factor. For example, if your growth is coming from, Let's assume Rezzle, which it, which it is, you're not seeing as much RWA against Rezzle. 
But if your quality improvements are in other asset classes which attract a higher RWA, then, then yes. So I think mix is a factor. I think it will continue to be a factor, you know, even going forward. Okay. And then, Barrett, I mean, you mentioned in your uh, opening remarks just using capital for inorganic means, so I'm going to use that as a, a doorway to go in. But my question is, are you still primarily interested in targets in the U.S. East Coast and, and Florida, or are you more willing to look outside of your current U U.S. footprint? Um, and I ask the questions just because I'm getting asked that question. Yeah, Doug, again, you know, like with Gabe, uh, nice to hear your voice and hope everything is well. Um, you know, our approach to looking at inorganic opportunities or acquisitions has not changed over the years. You know, we've said that, you know, we have our capital deployment framework that looks at, you know, what needs do we have, et cetera, et cetera. So I won't repeat and bore you with that. You know, with respect to, to, to specific acquisitions, you know, we've also been very clear that it has to make strategic sense. It has to make financial sense. It has to be within our risk appetite, and of course, it has to be, you know, aligned with the TD culture. You know, those are very important uh, criteria for for the bank. And so, yeah, of course, you know, doing something within our footprint uh, is is terrific because it it helps us financially and it actually helps us, you know, become more of a scale player in certain markets where we are building scale, and it will just accelerate that. But we've not been shy in looking at opportunities and, frankly, you know, having done deals and outside of our footprint as well. You know, our auto business that started with the acquisition of Chrysler Financial is a national business in the United States, a credit card business, our partnership with Target and Nordstrom is national in nature. Um, so, you know, it depends on the opportunities, but it has to meet our criteria. You know, it's, it's very important to us that it, do make, it does make strategic sense and financial sense and risk and, and culture. So that's the best way I can sort of give you, uh, you know, more, uh, more insight as to, you know, what our thought process is. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. The next question is from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Good morning. I guess, uh, Bharat, I take it uh, from your last response that if something meets all your criteria and ends up, let's just say, in California, that would still be fair game? Uh, yeah, you know, as long as it makes you know sense to all the criteria I've laid out, then, of course, we'd look at any any transaction that that uh, that you know comes our way or is on offer, I know that's how we look at it, and it's been our approach for a few years, and it has worked well for us. Makes sense. Uh, I guess uh, another question: At the end of October, you announced uh, pretty meaningful uh, uh, executive changes. Just talk to us in terms of how we should re read into that. I understand part of it was just bringing in the next generation of uh, talent. Uh, into leadership roles, but as we think about execution, does it change anything in terms of the pace at which you move on things or just strategic priorities, maybe tactically being a little bit different? Would love any perspective you can share. Hey, Brian, you know, uh, the great thing about uh, TD is, you know, the strength of our bench. If you look at the, you know, the executives uh, that, 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 that we have, and that's a huge blessing and a huge advantage for the bank. So. I'm so proud uh, of the team. You saw, you know, what we've delivered for us, all, all of our stakeholders, including our shareholders, 
uh, last year and fr frankly over, over many years. So, you know, I, I don't think you you should view this as a change in strategy or approach at all. Uh, this is just, you know, taking advantage of the terrific talent we have in the bank. And of course, you know, we um, once in a while have retirements as well. So, you know, we got to uh, work that into, into our thinking and, and make sure that, you know, as a bank, um, that we are well positioned uh, for, for the great opportunities we have going forward. Got it. Um, thanks for taking my questions. Thank, Thank you. you. The next question is from Paul Holden from CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good afternoon. So first question relates to um, the commercial loan growth in the U.S. and the additional disclosure on triple P is appreciated and it gives us an opportunity to back out the non-triple P loans, which were down again quarter over quarter. And just wondering, what's the outlook there in the near term? Um, now that the triple P program is over, do we expect the, the non-triple P will start to uh, recover? Great. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Paul, nice to hear from you, and thanks for the question. Um, yeah, so we provided the additional disclosure because we thought it was important, but, you know, backing out PPP, what you generally see on the commercial side is you're seeing uh, uh, the slowdown in loan growth uh, and negative year-over-year -year loan growth really mirror itself on the opposite side of the balance sheet with a tremendous growth in deposits. In the U.S., not unsimilar to um, many of our peer banks, uh, they reported Q3, you're seeing a lot of pressure on commercial uh, loan outstandings. And that really translates into uh, what we see day in and day out of just very, very low, record low utilization rates. We used to think utilization rates on the commercial book in the low 30% range was, was, was very low, and now we're in the high teens. So it's just one indication uh, that there's a lot of liquidity. And with rates so low, you continue to see that long-term structures are being done in the capital markets, especially for larger, larger commercial borrowers. But notwithstanding all of this, I would say that the origination volume that the teams are processing are very strong again. Demand is back. It's just credit and credit facilities are getting retired uh, quicker and, uh, and with capital markets debt. We would expect to see this beginning to normalize uh, in Q1 and Q2, based on everything that we can see in the market, pipelines, and activity that's going on. That is helpful. Thank you. And then second question is with, with, with respect to capital. It feels like every quarter you surprise us with a positive update on CET1. When I look at that internal capital generation number of 49 basis points, I just wonder if there is a scenario where you'd be able to generate enough loan growth, enough uh, RWA to actually consume all of that internal capital generation. Like, can, can, can you envision such a scenario or even under more robust loan growth, you expect you'll continue to accrete uh, CET1? Uh, Paul, this is Barrett. You know, hard to put a specific number on, you know, what that would be, but I mean, this is an indication of the earnings power of TD Bank Group, um, and you know that's uh, how our business model is positioned. Uh, we do generate excess capital, and uh, we can also absorb, you know, uh, good loan growth. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think I give you specific guidance as to you know how much of our capital will be used on what level of loan growth, but suffice it to say, as I've said many times before. 
our capital deployment framework, our, our priority number one is to support our existing strategies, you know, whatever strategies, whatever plans we put in place, and that entails, you know, uh, use of uh, or increase in RWAs on an ongoing basis because that's we are a growing franchise, and we have lots of opportunities, and and to have the flexibility we do is a great advantage for the for the bank. Understood. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Minnie Grauman from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Just keeping on the capital theme, just wondering how aggressive you intend to be on the buyback, and could we see a scenario where you renew your buyback uh, within the year that you use it all up and, and renew? Many, good good to hear from you. Um, you know, in our case, uh, I mean, this is uh, it's terrific that, you know, we've announced this NCIB, the, the buyback. Uh, it's one of the largest ones we've announced, you know, in, in recent history, at least that's my recollection. And the important thing to note for, for, for us, uh, at least, is that uh, when we announce, we do execute. Um, so, you know, we'll be busy doing that. And, you know, hard to uh, give you specific scenarios in the future because that, particularly given the uncertain environment, it's hard to predict, you know, what's going to happen a year from now, six months from now, or even a quarter from now. And hopefully, and, you know, for the sake of all of us, there's no more variants coming down the pike here because things can change quite dramatically. Uh, but it's hard to, you know, give you uh, specific scenarios like that. But, uh, you know, very happy that we've announced this buyback because I think it is meaningful and our intention is to complete it. There are no doubt that the buyback's large historically, but when I look at the kind of capacity that you have, the kind of excess capital you have, it seems like you could do multiples of, of that buyback uh, and still have a reasonably high capital ratio. So uh, I guess you know, maybe another way to think about it is what, what capital ratio are you managing to and, and why not uh, be more aggressive on the buyback? What are the considerations that, uh, that you have? How much of that is M&A related? Yeah, again, I, I I don't think I give you precise numbers, you know, that make sense, uh, you know, to try and predict and forecast these numbers. Uh, I think the fact that we can announce a, a buyback of, of this magnitude and still have the flexibility uh, tells you the, 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 the strength of TD, and, and, you know, that's a good position to be in. So it's hard for me to give you precisely, you know, what numbers we are working through, what the scenario might be, you know, a few quarters or a, or a year or two down the road. So... I mean, time will tell, many. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Nigel D'Souza from Veritas Investment Research. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my first question was on your allowance levels. And when I look at uh, allowances for forming loans, they're still fairly elevated, as you noted. And I'm trying to understand... You know, given the improvement in credit quality that you've cited, uh, excess liquidity for your clients, and um, just the general uh, low level of impairments and delinquencies, what's preventing uh, higher releases of those allowances? And, and to put another way, if I look at your forward-looking indicators, they've improved substantially over the last uh, year or so. I'm wondering why that hasn't translated to uh, the higher uh, releases of allowances on performing loans. What's offsetting that? Yeah, it's Ajay. So <clears throat> let me respond. You know, our allowance is really reflecting our view of the expected credit loss. 
And in determining that view, we certainly have taken into account, you know, all the uncertainty that still exists. And that uncertainty, as Barrett just said, you know, you've got existing variants, you've got new variants, you've got potential for inflation. It's actually already here. Uh, the ultimate economic trajectory is an unknown, and the post-stimulus impact on customers is also going to play out in the coming quarters. So we feel we have the appropriate level of allowance. However, each quarter end, you know, we're going to really look at it. We're going to look at the changing macro situation. We're going to look at the forward-looking uncertainty, and to the extent there are improvements, we certainly will consider uh, releases in the future. But we're quite comfortable with where our allowance is, is right now. Okay, and just functionally, um, the improvement in FLIs, has that been offset by management overlay or a higher weighting to the downside scenario? Well, we didn't make any change in our weightings uh, quarter over quarter. Uh, I would say the overlays over time, you know, have reduced, but they, the overlays still exist. They've been reducing with time, but they still exist. And I would finally say overlays remain an important part of our allowance process. Okay, and if I could just quickly finish on uh, a different question on your trading income. When I look at the bank level, there's there's a, a loss there, and I know that's not what you want us to track in terms of uh, wholesale banking trading revenue, but could you just fill us in on what's driving that loss on the bank level? Is that uh, fair value losses related to securities held for trading? Wondering about yeah. the bank level, Calvin. Yeah, so I think we should look at the trading-related income yeah. because uh, looking oh, at just yeah. trading line in itself, um, 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 it, it does not include all of the hedges that you have that would come through in NII, for example. And that's why we actually do provide that information separately. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, caller. Thank you. The next question is from Lamar Persaud from Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks. I just want to continue on the uh, M&A and capital discussion. If there is something that makes sense from an M&A perspective, uh, uh, what CET want ratio would the bank be comfortable going down to uh, to finance a deal? You know, again, that would depend on, you know, what kind of risks are we assuming, you know, what is our view of, uh, you know, what scenarios might be at play over the, the short and medium term. And that would guide us as to, you know, what level of capitals we, we need to, to, to have in the bank. So hard to exactly put a pin on, you know, what's the number. It would depend on circumstance uh, at the time, and particularly if there was an M&A as to, you know, what actually are we pursuing and what kind of risks are we be assuming? Okay, thanks. That's it for me. Thanks, Lamar. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Sorab Movahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hey, thank you. Just a couple of uh, maybe clarifying questions, maybe for Greg. Greg, I, I, I'm sorry if I missed it, but when you were talking about the triple P loans, did you also mention what's the remaining on amortized fees on that? On that? Greg? I, uh, thank you, uh, Saurabh. Nice to hear from you. And I did not. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we would generally look at the unamortizing fees. And again, some of this, it depends on how long these, uh, these loans are outstanding, because if they don't get forgiven, then they continue to amortize over the life 
but we expect a vast majority of these to be forgiven in the, in the next couple of quarters. Um, and it's uh, probably about $100 million would be the, the rough estimate of unamortized fees uh, for forgiveness left to go. $100 million left to go. Okay, perfect. And then uh, just, Kelvin, from, uh, you know, from, uh, uh, from your perspective, you've, you've, I think you drew our attention to page 27, I think, of the slide deck where you're talking about you know, adjusting to to get a kind of purer view of the pre-tax pre-provision, for example, uh, uh, earnings of the bank, you know, adjusting for the partner's value and so on and so forth. Fair to say you're going to continue to give this slide uh, indefinitely. In other words, when things normalize, uh, so to speak, on credit and the mechanics with, uh, with the partner's share, like we'll be able to see this on an ongoing basis. You didn't just conveniently give this to us like over the last number of quarters and then you're going to take it away in the future when when it may be a little bit more of a tailwind to the bank, are you? Depends on how much you're willing to pay. But uh, <laughs> the, um, And so uh, we would continue to provide the slide as long as it is relevant. Um, but you, the, 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 the thing about this slide is that um, because the, P, uh, the PCL related to the partnership is volatile. And when that's volatile, it creates the other offset on the expenses. And you could actually see uh, this amount in, um, um, in the corporate segment PCL. That's mostly where the volatility is. So even if this slide is not there, you could pick up these numbers. And in our, uh, we would provide all of the details in this, now the end note to this deck that you can pick up in our uh, sub-pack. Okay, I, I, I think it would be a good idea to continue to provide it for an uh, extended period of time. Um, Barrett, uh, just, I guess, to come back at Lamar's question, uh, I mean, in the past, I can think of uh, uh, historically the bank not being shy about, I'll, I'll call it transformative capital deployment, maybe going all the way back to the acquisition of Canada Trust and obviously the Commerce Bank acquisition. Is, is it fair to say that if you find something that, uh, first of all, are you in pursuit of something transformative? And then secondarily, if you found something transformative, you think you'll, you, will, you will be able to do it with resources on hand or would you, would you be inclined to also go uh, uh, to your shareholders? No, but, you know, sort of, I know, I see the trend of all the questions here on, on capitals. First, I would say um, that's a fantastic position for TD to be in. You know, it gives us lots of flexibility in deploying our capital for organic and inorganic opportunities. Regarding your question, you know, listen, transformative or not transformative, we, if it meets our criteria, we will certainly look at it very seriously and see whether it makes sense for us. And, and we have not been shy in acquiring entities uh, that are sometimes pure capability, uh, you know, builds for the bank. Layer 6 comes to mind, which was an AI company, nothing to do with banking at the time, but it's turned out to be a terrific acquisition for the bank. Um, so sometimes, you know, we, we can talk about transformative or not transformative, but our, our view is, uh, that you know, we would want to make sure that it, it it's within our strategy. It makes sense for the bank over the long term, and it will create you know tremendous value uh, for all of our stakeholders. Now, you know your your point about uh, you know 
capital deployment at, at, the, at the moment. Well, I will remind folks, you know, when we did those transactions that you just talked about, we were not shy to go back to our shareholders and asking, you know, for money because this, those, those acquisitions made sense in their own right. It was not something like, you know, for some reason our excess capital was burning a hole in our pocket. And, and I think you should see that as a continuation at TD. That's how we look at uh, any, any potential transaction. I appreciate the color. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chan from Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, maybe going back to that slide 26, Kelvin, um, on the yearly PTPP, uh, with all the adjustments, um, you get the 3% in fiscal 2021, 3% in 2020. Um, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but when you think about fiscal 2022, how does expenses or target expenses, uh, how should we think about that heading into 2022? Yeah, so we don't um, have necessarily a specific target for expense growth. Um, the way we look at it is that you know, we need to deliver value for our shareholders in the medium and long term, and that means that we need to continue to invest in the business. Uh, and uh, so that means you have to prioritize uh, uh, what are important projects. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the day, it's driving growth. And so our goal is to um, uh, uh, drive a positive operating leverage, having revenue growing faster than expenses. Okay, and Barrett, maybe just sneaking one more on, on capital uh, and M&A. One of your competitors talked about expanding wealth management, distribution capabilities, and I know in the past you have bid um, uh, to a large Canadian independent. Is that something, um, is that an area of interest for you? Uh, are you looking at that uh, piece of the segment, especially um, in this marketplace where it's been pretty pretty hot? Oh, you were bringing up a bit there, Scott. I just but I think I got your question. Like I've said this before, anything in Canada in the financial services uh, space, we would look at it very seriously because you know there are not many opportunities that that, that present themselves, and whenever they have, TD has been there. You know, I think uh, the the aeroplan business, you know, comes to mind. You know, over the recent past, um, and you know, in wealth management as well, of course, you know, uh, Greystone comes to mind, and so of course we will look at it. So I think that's what you meant. Uh, but you know the, our our view on M&A is not confined to one specific business within within our portfolio and mix of businesses it would be any part of the bank. Okay, got it. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you. The next question is from Darko Mihalik from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi. Thank you. I I think this first uh, numbers questions for Calvin. If you can just give us an idea of um and this may not be too material but i'm just curious about uh, uh how much uh, you, you guys sort of feel that uh, insurance claims were uh below normal i'm just trying to just trying to understand what kind of a headwind you might face uh if if claims normalize okay. sorry thanks barry terry so i'll take the question darko uh, so um Clearly, sequentially, uh, there were a number of factors that impacted claims uh, going down, uh, more favorable prior year development. Uh, we had lower CATs um, in Q4, uh, better claims experience, um, decrease in the fair value of investment supporting claim liabilities, and then we did have uh, some offsets to that. I think your question as you look forward, 
I mean, we would expect, again, there's a lot of moving parts, as, as many of my colleagues have said, uh, and I, I think there is a question around return to the office and commuting and when commuting actually returns to a more normalized level. Um, so, you know, our expectation would be that in a normalizing environment, we, we would see an increase in claims. I would also say that our cost of claims has been coming down and is better than at uh, pre-pandemic levels. So if that sustains, uh, I'd say that's a positive. Okay, thanks for that. But this, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and work with that. And, and I guess um, another question, just generally speaking, pick, picking up on the theme of, of management change, um, is, is is it fair to say that um, when we think about the three units that have been affected, if I'm including Jazz here, <laughs> and, uh, um, is, is it fair to say that, you know, there's going to be a period here of sort of, um, you know, a significant um, review and potentially restructuring charges uh, in 2022 or something of that sort, or or do you think that that's way off base, that, that line of thinking, and, and we should really just not think about um, large changes uh, in the year ahead? Certainly, I'm not thinking about it, Darko. Um, so, you know, I, I'm certainly not thinking about it. We are very happy with the strategies uh, we've deployed over many, many years, and I expect that to continue. And so you should not view as management changes, you know, uh, meaning to fundamentally change the way the bank, this bank is. Uh, absolutely not. So I've not... I'm not thinking about it, but like, you know, I'm reluctant to always say, okay, it's never going to happen or whatever, uh, but I, I certainly am not thinking about it the way you positioned it. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, I guess, uh, Calvin, uh, follow-up question, just and apologize if I missed it. With uh, the Bank of Canada expected to move on rates, the U.S. Fed probably moves in July. Remind us in terms of the AI lift we should expect to see from a 25 basis points or 100 basis points rate hike both in Canada and the U.S. Yes, hi, Rim. Um, the, so, so the uh, a 25 basis point uh, hike in the short uh, rate would be about $370 million, and that's split about 50-50 U.S.-Canada. And is the 50% in Canada as immediate as it would be in the U.S., or would it take time uh, to flow into just given the duration of the uh, asset side? That would be immediate because it's a short-term uh, move, like a short-rate move, and that would have sure. an immediate impact, yeah. All right, so $370 million. And uh, on, on another sort of uh, smaller question, we saw Capital One come out yesterday and over draft fees. Uh, Bharat, you've talked about this in the past. Any updated views around overdraft fees, how you're thinking about that product in the U.S.? I'll pass it on to Greg, but just to, sure. you know, we, we review this, Abraham, uh, on an ongoing basis as to what makes sense. We introduced this terrific product in the U.S. Greg had talked about it with TD Essential Banking and very happy with how that is attracting customers to the TD franchise in the U.S. So, uh, Greg, I don't know whether you want to add anything, but this is something that we, all our offerings, we review it and to make sure we are competitive and, and meeting customer needs. Uh, I don't know, Greg, is there anything else you wanted to add? Oh, I think you've covered it really well. And, Ibrahim, uh, nice to hear from you as well. And thanks for the question. Um, 
Uh, I would say that, um, you know, we rolled out the TD Essential product, which is a non-overdraft checking product for our consumers. And we rolled this out only in August. And we just had terrific take up from this product already. In fact, roughly 10% of our new accounts are coming from this. And, um, uh, you know, so again, we look at uh, how the product is positioned. In some cases, overdraft is a product that our customers want. They want to be able to, to utilize from time to time if it's needed. Uh, but certainly we do look at uh, how these things are structured and, uh, and we've made changes in the past. And as the market moves, we would uh, consider changes again in the future. Got it. And one last, uh, if I could squeeze in. Bharat, can you comment on potential for any strategic deepening with the Schwab relationship? It's been a great asset for you. But I'm just wondering, is there anything on the lending side, et cetera, that you could be doing with Schwab, or we shouldn't be thinking about that? No, listen, you know, we, we have a terrific, uh, it's been not only a great investment, but a great relationship. As you know, we have a long-term deposit agreement. You know, our Think or Swim platform in Canada is supported by Schwab. So already, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very good uh, and a very productive, uh, you know, relationship for TD, and, and, and we like our position very well. We keep on looking at different things and want to make sure we do what makes sense, you know, for, for, for the clients we may have. So that's an ongoing review and where appropriate, of course, you know, we would uh, offer, you know, where it made sense. So uh, hard to give you any more detail than that, uh, but the existing relationship in itself is is, is pretty sizable. Good. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. That is all the quest time we have for questions today. I will turn the meeting back over to Mr. Barrett Mazrani for closing remarks. Thank you. Thank you, operator. And, and thank you to all of you. I mean, great questions, great engagement. I know a lot of uh, questions on capital, but I, I, I view that as a positive given, you know, the flexibility uh, it, it provides the bank in, in making the right investments for the future. I'd also like to once again thank our 90,000 TD bankers around the world for everything they delivered for all of our stakeholders, including our shareholders, customers, clients, and communities, both in Q4 and in fiscal uh, 21. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to take a moment to recognize two of our executives on today's call. You know, I think a couple of, couple of you already mentioned it, and as we recently announced, you would all know that Terry will be retiring from TD at the end of January of next year after an extraordinary 35-year career. In addition, Greg will be assuming a new role as vice chair of our U.S. Bank effective January 1st. As this will be their last quarterly earnings call for, for, for both Greg and Terry, I'd like to invite each of them to say a few words. Greg? Well, uh, thank you, Barrett, very much. And uh, I'll be brief in my comments, but it is kind of hard to believe that it's been already a little over five years since it was announced that I was taking over just the U.S. business. And um, I really do want to thank uh, Barrett, you, yourself, the boards, both uh, the parent and the U.S. boards, and the entire senior executive team for your counsel, your guidance and collaboration, uh, certainly over the last five years and really over the 20 years I've been here with the organization. I'm really proud to, to see what's been accomplished and built in the U.S. and particularly what we're investing in and the momentum we've built real time in the U.S. And that momentum has really been accelerated throughout the pandemic, if it's hard to believe. And we believe we'll be coming out of this stronger than when we went into it two years ago. Finally, I really do want to make sure my comments are, are closed off here by thanking my leadership team in the U.S., as well as the 25,000 colleagues we have at America's Most Convenient Bank that drives these outcomes day in and day out. 
I'm really so proud of what's been delivered, particularly over the last two years, uh, real time in this pandemic and the momentum we're building. And finally, I would just say that um, Leo will make a terrific leader for the business in the U.S., and he and I have been working on the transition for the last month, and we'll continue to work over it on it over the next month and months more to come. I look forward to the next role as vice chair, and in particular, uh, being able to get out and spend more time with clients and thinking through m and uh, Barrett with you and Leo and the rest of the team. So uh, all the best and over to Terry. Terry. Thanks, Greg. Um, I want to start by thanking Barrett for his support over the years, but particularly for his support while I was working through my decision to retire uh, and then the ask of the bank for me to join the U.S. board, which will keep me connected, which I'm really excited about. Um, everyone around the table knows I'm still an armchair HR person, and so some of your questions were around the set moves and, and the additions to the set, and I have to agree with what Barrett has said. Uh, you know, it really is a, a tribute to the leadership bench at this bank, and uh, you will all benefit from uh, the great people who, these new moves, as well as the new people who've joined the senior executive team, and, and seeing Kelvin uh, today on the call, you've been able to witness that. Uh, I am delighted that Michael Rhodes is going to lead the personal bank in its next chapter. He's an amazing leader. He's a great partner. Uh, and I know he's going to build on the current momentum and ensure that we remain a unique and inclusive culture and a strong growth engine for the bank. The hardest part about retiring is obviously leaving the people. Um, so my senior executive team colleagues, but also just the amazing people in the personal bank and across the bank. Um, and, you know, I just feel immense pride on how all of you and all of them have stepped up for Canadians over the last 20 months and dealt with all the personal challenges at the same time as really focusing on the needs of our communities and our colleagues and our customers. Uh, and I thank you. Uh, your challenge to us has made us better and your support for the bank is incredible. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and that you're able to safely enjoy time with friends and family this year. Barrett, back to you. Thanks, thanks Greg and thanks Terry. And no pressure on Michael and Leo, based on what I just heard. Uh, we'll redo the plan for next year. Uh, Greg, all the best in your new role. And Terry, of course, congratulations once again on a fabulous career and your well-deserved retirement. I look forward to seeing you at the U.S. board uh, starting in February, so that's terrific. Uh, thank you, everyone, for a, for a great call, great engagement, as I said. Uh, stay safe, and here's wishing you all the best for the holidays and the new year. And we will see you in 90 days. Thank you. Thank you. The conference is now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.